So today we're going to be doing the Critique of Judgment uh, by Immanuel Kant. And as I said yesterday, we're going to be continuing this next week. Uh, so it looks like I'm probably going to drop the lecture on pictorial representation uh, because you sort of need more than one lecture to cover the Critique of Judgment. Um, the Critique of Judgment is divided into two big parts. Uh, one part is about aesthetics. The other part is basically about the philosophy of science. Uh, the first part is called the critique of aesthetic judgment. The second part, the critique of teleologi teleological judgment. Uh, we're not going to be talking about the critique of teleological judgment, just the critique of aesthetic judgment. And within the critique of aesthetic judgment, a great number of issues are dealt with. Uh, we're really only going to be dealing with sections 1 to 40. Um, so that's most of it. That's the sort of central bits. But there's more to it than that, uh, where he talks about topics like the fine arts and genius, which are interesting in their own right, but we don't have time to cover that. Uh, so if any of you have ever come across Kant before, uh, either in his metaphysics, epistemology, or ethics, you'll know that he is a remarkably difficult writer to read. And there are a couple reasons for this, and it's actually worth being kind of aware of the things he does that makes him so difficult. Uh, one thing people often have said about Kant that he's the least precise of the great philosophers. And this is largely because he tends to use the same word uh, for a whole variety of very different things that are only linked by a really tenuous similarity, uh, but without signaling the differences between all the things that he applies the word to. And often without seeming to be aware, actually, <laughs> that he's using the word in a rather different sense uh, over and over again in various places. So I think it's helpful to remind yourself of that tendency of his when, he, when you're reading him. This is connected with another tendency he has, which is a tendency to, uh, as it's often put, make architectonic considerations dominant in his presentation of his philosophy. That means he wants to create a very elegant-looking system. Uh, so he's put a lot of work into his tables of contents in his various books to make sure that everything is in nice symmetrical groups of three and four. He really likes groups of three and four uh, in presenting his views. Uh, and often, in order to get that beautiful structure to his thought, he distorts words, uses them in rather strained ways. Uh, but quite apart from that, he also has an enormous amount of his own technical terminology. And, it, and we're going to discuss some of that. Uh, and in addition to that, his views on aesthetics are embedded in his larger philosophy. Uh, they're not incomprehensible entirely without knowledge of his larger philosophy, his more general views on epistemology, metaphysics, and philosophy of mind. Uh, but it certainly helps to know a bit about that. So uh, I'm going to begin today by just selecting a very few bits of background information about Kant that I think will be helpful when reading him. So one of the first things you'll notice when you start the critique of aesthetic judgment is that 
he uses this word representation quite frequently. And this is, again, one of those technical terms in Kant's system, is that representations are mental items in his usage. And there are two main types of representation in his system. The first kind is intuitions, and the second kind is concepts. And again, the word intuition here has nothing to do with what it normally means uh, in English. That's the word that's been selected to translate the German word he uses. Intuitions are, with certain very important exceptions, uh, sense perceptions. So they're representations of particular objects through the senses. We don't have to get into the important exceptions here uh, at just this moment. So for the most part, when he talks about representations in the generic, in the critique of judgment, he actually has intuitions in mind. And intuitions, again, for the most part here, are sense perceptions. Uh, representations of particular objects that you encounter in sense perception. As he puts it, intuitions are the representation through which an object is given to us, is how he phrases it often. The other main kind of representation, uh, which is going to come up a lot in his aesthetics, is a concept. Now, he's a certain view about the nature of concepts, uh, but he basically means by concept what we mean by concept. So a, a general representation as opposed to a particular representation. So the concept of dog as opposed to a representation of some particular dog or a sense perce perception of some particular dog. Nevertheless, for some reason, in the Critique of Judgment, he usually uses the term representation. And when he does that, he almost always means a sense perception, what elsewhere he calls an intuition. Sometimes he uses the word intuition in the Critique of Judgment, but mostly he uses the generic term representation. Uh, and concepts, that other kind of representation, are not the representation through which objects are given to us in experience, but as he puts it, the representation through which objects are thought. So you see a cow, your sense perception is an intuition of a particular cow. You identify it as a cow, you apply the concept of a cow to it. So you have the thought, this is a cow. Cooperation of intuitions, representation of this cow, with the concept by which you identify what it is, namely the concept of a cow. That is an example of kind of the way that he sees things working. Okay, so that's representations. Another important term, which he uses everywhere, totally central, is a priori. And some of you may have come across this elsewhere. And he calls a lot of different things a priori. Uh, Various representations are a priori. Intuitions and concepts, he thinks. There are some a priori intuitions and concepts. But the key notion of a priori, I think, that you need to be aware of is not what it means to call them a priori, but what it means to call knowledge a priori. So a priori knowledge is knowledge that is not justified by experience. So there's empirical knowledge, which is justified by experience. So the knowledge that it's raining outside, you acquire by having a sense experience. 
or is justified by having sense experience. But it's also quite important for him that we have a priori knowledge, knowledge that's not justified by sense experience. And examples include mathematical knowledge, certain principles of physics, such as every event has a cause, certain principles, uh, as we'll see also, a certain claim that aesthetic judgments commit us to. And that's why it's very important to get a handle on this. That a priori knowledge or an a priori claim is something that is not justified by experience, by contrast with empirical knowledge. Uh, he thinks there are two marks by which you can identify something as a bit of a priori knowledge. These are universality and necessity. And these will make their appearance in a big way in the critique of judgment. So universality just means that if you know that something is always the case without exception, then you can't know it by experience. So if you know that all bachelors without exception are unmarried, that's a priori knowledge. The reason it's a priori knowledge is quite simple. Your experience is limited. You haven't experienced every bachelor or every event or every group of two and two and verify that they make four. But if you know it anyway, then you can't know it from experience. So universality, that he takes to be one mark of a priori knowledge. The other mark he takes to be necessity. So if you know that something must be the case, you can't know that from experience. For another simple reason, experience only tells you what is the case. It doesn't tell you what must be the case. <clears throat> so those two terms, necess <coughs> excuse me, necessity and especially universality, uh, are going to loom large here in the critique of judgment. So that's just a little bit of background that I think is pretty crucial to understanding what's going on and what he's doing. Now, in the bits of the critique of aesthetic judgment that we're going to look at, Kant's basic strategy is this. So first, he's going to identify certain features that what he calls aesthetic judgments have. And this is what he says he's doing in the bit called the analytic of aesthetic judgments. And then he is going to point out a very, very puzzling feature of aesthetic judgments so characterized. So once he's characterized aesthetic judgments, he says there's a real problem here that demands explanation. And we'll get to that at the end of this lecture. And the principal question of the, aesthetic judge, of the critique of aesthetic judgment is the attempt to answer that question, to solve that puzzle that arises from this characterization of aesthetic judgments. And that, he says he's going to provide in the deduction of pure aesthetic judgments. So there's the analytic and there's the deduction. Now I say this is what he says he's going to do 
because material relevance to both of these is mixed all through the critique of aesthetic judgment. There's bits that are relevant to the deduction in the analytic, and there's bits that are relevant to the analytic repeated in the deduction. Uh, it really seems to have been written in a hurry, actually, the critique of aesthetic judgment. Um, Now, as I've tried to illustrate on the little chart on the back of the handout, when he says aesthetic judgment, he is not only talking about judgments that something is beautiful, as you might naturally suppose. That's more the way that that term would be used today. But there are at least three kinds of aesthetic judgment for him. There are what he calls judgments of taste, which are concerned with beauty. There are judgments of the sublime, which he's going to have various things to say about, and which we'll discuss next week. And there are judgments of the agreeable, so tasty food, for example. And what makes these all aesthetic is that they have subjective grounds, as he puts it. They're based on something about the judge rather than something about the object. In each of these cases, as it happens, it's a feeling. They're based on a feeling rather than a property of the object. So what I'd like to focus on today is a few features uh, of judgments of taste, so judgments concerned with beauty. And putting these features together will set up the problem that he wants to solve in the deduction. Uh, and next week we will discuss that problem, uh, characterize it at greater length and go through Kant's solution and hopefully we'll also uh, go through the analytic of the sublime next week discussing the features that uh, judgments of the sublime have. As it happens he thinks that it's really judgments of taste that pose this problem requiring a separate solution uh, so that's really going to be the focus. Judgments of the sublime he thinks uh, don't require a separate deduction for reasons we can discuss next week. Okay, so this week is going to be focused on these key features of the analytic of the beautiful whose focus is judgments of taste. So the first feature of judgments of taste, and it's not a tautology given the way he uses the word aesthetic, or it's not trivially true I should say, is that judgments of taste are aesthetic. That means judgments of taste are based on pleasure or that's because, rather, judgments of taste are based on pleasure. Now, as we discussed with Hume, very common view, and Kant doesn't even argue for it, that beauty is not a property of the beautiful object. Hume gave some argument for it, as we saw. Kant is happy to take it for granted. Beauty is not a property of the beautiful object. When we judge something to be beautiful, it's not because we've perceived a property called beauty in the object. 
it is on the basis of a feeling the object give us, gives us, a feeling of pleasure. And it's for that reason that judgments of taste are aesthetic judgments. They have, as he puts it, subjective grounds. They're not based on something in the object. That makes them different from what he calls variously logical judgments, theoretical judgments, which do attribute a property to the object. Now, it's worth taking a look at section 36 here to give yourself a bit of an idea of how Kant imagines this relation between judgment and pleasure. And I think it's a good example of that stretching of words that he's so notorious for. So the way he puts it uh, there is that in a logical judgment, when you attribute a property to a thing, you connect your perception of the particular thing to a concept that you classify the thing under, or a concept of a property that you attribute to it. Uh, so he uses this word connect to describe the relation between perceptions and concepts. And then he says, and then the only difference in aesthetic judgments, or maybe not the only difference, but is that you, instead of connecting a concept to your perception, you connect a feeling to your perception. Now this is just typical of Kant. <laughs> to imply that it's the, just the very same relation between percep as holds between perceptions and concepts in logical judgments as holds between perceptions and feelings. Uh, this is what you sort of have to deal with when reading him, because uh, that's just not transparent at all. It uh, doesn't sound remotely plausible that it's the same relation as there is between concepts and perceptions, whatever that is, whatever that relation is. Uh, as there is between feelings and perceptions. So, but that's how he's picturing it. You have your perception, you connect a concept to it when you attribute a property, and in the case of judgments of taste, you have your perception and you connect a feeling to it. Uh, use of the same word connect makes it sound like they're the same relation. Strange to think that they would be. Um, okay, that's just sort of by the by. Second key point, and I think it is worth distinguishing this from the first one, is that not only judgments are judgments of taste based on pleasure, they're not based on concepts. So this, I don't think you can, I don't think it would be too much representation to say that uh, the second point is that judgments of taste are based only on pleasure. So it's not as though they're based in part on pleasure and in part on something else, but only on pleasure. Now, what does this mean to say that a judgment is based on a concept or to deny it? Well, I think we have to go back to from before, is that we do not make this judgment based on applying a concept of a property or of a kind of thing to what we see. So. We don't, in particular, uh, judge that something is beautiful on the basis of having applied the concept of squareness or shapeliness or uh, possessing unity and variety, all these sorts of candidates that have been offered as tests for what makes something beautiful. Our judgment of taste is not based on any prior application of a concept. So not only is there no such concept as beauty, 
But when you judge that something's beautiful, you don't make that judgment based on applying any other concept at all. It's only based on the feeling of pleasure. Now, he makes a lot of claims about judgments and about the pleasure they're based on. And uh, he makes very similar claims about both, the judgment and the pleasure it's based on. And you can understand why if there's this intimate connection between the two. But I think that basically his argument for, or the considerations he advances in support of the view that judgments aren't based on concepts is the view that the pleasure they're based on is not itself based on concepts. So pleasure in beauty is not based on concepts. Judgments of taste are based on pleasure in beauty. Uh, and that's supposed to support the idea that judgments of taste are not based on, grounded on, concepts. So, as he puts it, uh, or what this amounts to is that you don't get the pleasure in the beautiful from having identified it as having a certain property or as belonging to such and such a kind. And again, it's worth quoting the way he is imagining it. Pleasure in beautiful objects instead, is it, as he puts it, immediately coupled with the representation through which the object is given. That is, it's immediately coupled with an intuition in his terminology, a sense perception, not the representation through which it is thought, namely, a concept. So you're not pleased at it because you've identified it as shapely, square, colorful, etc. You are pleased merely because you have the per perception of this thing not because you've identified it as possessing any particular property or belonging to any particular kind. And in fact, he says, even if you know what kind of thing it is, to make a judgment of taste, you've got to leave that knowledge aside. So not base it on what you know. So in his example, a botanist who knows that a flower is the reproductive organ of a plant, doesn't make his judgments about whether the flower is beautiful based on that knowledge. His pleasure in the flower does not arise because he's identified it as the reproductive organ of a plant. Not because he's applied the concept of reproductive organ to the plant. So it is difficult to overemphasize how important this claim is for his view. The judgments of, pleasure, judgments of taste are based on pleasure and not on concepts. Because I think that a huge number of other things he says, and it's not always transparent that they're connected to this claim in this way, but I think a huge number of claims he makes are actually more or less derived from this one claim that judgments of taste based on pleasure, not based on concepts. And I'll get to those in a minute. But to give you a sense of what, more of what it would mean for pleasure to be based on concepts, or for judgments to be based on concepts, he contrasts judgments of taste with, or pleasure in beauty, I should say, with pleasure in the good, on the one hand, and pleasure in the agreeable on the other. 
So he says that to judge something to be good, so a good knife, for example, not his example, you have to know uh, whether it is what it's supposed to be. So whether it's an effective cutting implement, for example. So to judge something good, you have to apply the concept of what it's intended to be. Cutting implement, for example, before you can judge it to be good. If it is what it's intended to be, then it's good of its kind. And so if you take pleasure in its being good of its kind, your pleasure is in this sense based on the concept you apply to it. That's an example of what it would be for pleasure to be based on concepts. And that's exactly not what pleasure in beauty is like. It's not as a result of having applied concepts to it. And again, remember with the botanist, it's fine if you do know what it is and what it's meant to be. It's just not that your pleasure is based on it. It's not that your pleasure is based on that knowledge. In the way that your pleasure in a good knife, admiration of a good knife, would be based on having applied a concept to it. So this freedom from concepts makes it different from pleasure in the good. It does make it similar to pleasure in what he calls the agreeable. So, <clears throat> as he puts it, uh, so to judge something agreeable, such as spicy food, or uh, he says even something like health, the agreeableness of health, we need only consider whether it pleases or at least does not pain our senses when we experience it. You don't need to recognize some property of spicy food in this view, or categorize it as a certain type of food in order to find it agreeable. You just taste it and discern whether it pleases your senses. Uh, by contrast, he says, if you were to judge whether spicy food is good for you, you would have to apply concepts, namely the concepts of the consequences that it has for you. Maybe it makes you unhealthy, uh, and you, while judging the spicy food very agreeable, you might judge that it is not good, because the concept, what you recognize is true of it, entails that it's not good for you. Okay, so this key claim, judgments of taste and pleasure and beauty, not based on concepts, uh, is something that he gets a lot of traction out of. Uh, and this is typical of Kant, to try and base a lot of conclusions on a very slender basis. So, first conclusion may not sound all that striking, but it is important in terms of at least understanding his view, is this claim that judgments of taste are singular judgments. So I've said that pleasure in beauty is pleasure in an intuition, and an intuition is a representation of a particular item. Again, the pleasure is not based on concepts, it's based on an intuition, which is a representation of a particular item. So the judgment based on that pleasure is going to be a judgment about some particular item as opposed to a generalization about all items of that kind. 
to give you an example, this tulip is beautiful would be an example of a judgment of taste. All tulips are beautiful is not a judgment of taste in his view. That's a generalization that's not about any particular tulip. So that's a really important thing to observe here uh, that I don't think people often enough take note of is that in Kant's vocabulary, a judgment of taste is not just any judgment in which you call something beautiful. It's got to have the right basis. So the judgment that all tulips are beautiful is not based on uh, the immediate presentation to you of all tulips and the pleasure you get from that in a sense perception. Rather, it's based on previous judgments of taste. So the judgment, this tulip's beautiful, that tulip's beautiful, etc., etc., etc. Therefore, all tulips are beautiful. So it's based on, uh, it's not based on the immediate intuition of tulips. It's based on prior judgments of taste. But the fact that it's based on judgments of taste does not make it a judgment of taste. He says, even the judgment, all tulips are beautiful, is a logical or theoretical judgment, not a judgment of taste. So that's really important to understand because he's not saying it's not possible to do that or to make judgments like that. He's just saying they're not judgments of taste. They are logical judgments. They're talking about beauty, but they're still not judgments of taste. Okay, so that's one point. Second point he thinks, and this is directed against Hume, I think, and a lot of other people, is that judgments of taste cannot be proven by argument. So yesterday we discussed a bit about how Hume has that quaint passage in which he describes, or assumes at least the possibility, of convincing somebody by general principles that they lack taste about a certain object, that some object they didn't like is beautiful by showing them that it has the properties that general principles have identified as the properties of the beautiful, i.e. properties that please everyone in other cases and that please the guy you're arguing with in this case. Uh, and it, if you show him that the case he doesn't like has those properties, then Hume says he'd have to agree with us. Okay, I was wrong. It actually is beautiful. Kant is totally opposed to that procedure. He thinks that's not the way it works at all. Uh, so he says, what, it, what would it be to provide an argument to the effect that something's beautiful? What would it be to support a judgment of taste through an argument? Well, it would have to take the form uh, of the following. Everything with certain property P, so curviness or squareness or unity in variety is beautiful. First premise. Everything with this property is beautiful. Second premise, this object in front of us has this property. Squareness, curviness, unity in variety, whatever. Therefore, conclusion, this object is beautiful. <clears throat> I think a lot of people when they start to study aesthetics, kind of hope that this is what aestheticians <clears throat> talk about, is trying to 
provide necessary and sufficient conditions of something being beautiful. Um, they don't really anymore, uh, and it may have something to do with Kant's influence here. This is not possible procedure. Various people have tried it, so you hear about things like the golden ratio and things that, like this that have been proposed over the years as something that all beautiful objects have in common. But Kant thinks this is not how you demonstrate a judgment of taste. <clears throat> and again, for the quite simple reason that to do this would be to base your judgment of tastes on concepts. Namely, the concept of whatever property you identified as necessary or sufficient, necessary and sufficient for beauty. The concept of unity and variety. The concept of the golden ratio. The concept of whatever was identified in the principle. But if judgments of taste aren't based on concepts and are only based on pleasure, then you can't do that. And there are no laws of taste where that means something that can function as the first premise of an argument that supports a judgment of taste, proves a judgment of taste. Furthermore, and this has also caused a lot of controversy, is that judgments of taste <clears throat> can't be supported by other people's judgments of taste. So the fact that all the experts say that a thing is beautiful provides no support whatsoever for a judgment of taste. And again, I can't help but think that this is a dig at Hume. I don't know if people know whether Kant read of the standard of taste. He certainly read the essay, The Skeptic. But there are various points that he's addressing ideas that are certainly quite explicit in Hume. Maybe they were just around in the general atmosphere at the time. But Hume and others who think that the judgments, even of very qualified judges, support a judgment of taste, are wrong. And once again, this is because judgments of taste are based only on pleasure, not on concepts, not on anything else, not on the concept of being liked by the true critics, for example. Now what's often, I think, missed in this <clears throat> is he does say something that uh, sounds like he's allowing that you can make a logical judgment of beauty based on what other people have liked. So just like that generalization about tulips that we discussed, the fact that the true critics or lots of qualified judges have regarded something as beautiful does provide some support for the conclusion that it's beautiful. But to draw that conclusion is not to make a judgment of taste. Again, this despite the fact that it's a conclusion about the thing's beauty. Judgments of taste, very special class of judgments about a thing's beauty. So these are various points about nature of the judgment, how it can be supported. Further conclusion he draws, beauty is not a kind of perfection. And the reason he says this is because earlier in the century, a lot of rationalist philosophers, such as Christian Wolff uh, and a number of others, held that when we perceive beauty, we are sort of dimly or obscurely perceiving perfection. The perfection of an object. I think perfection of an object. Um, perfection, at least. 
And Kant says this is not right. Beauty cannot be a kind of perfection. <clears throat> Argument being that in order to judge that something is perfect, or has, uh, is perfect in some respect, we'd have to know what kind of thing the object is, and what its perfect purpose is, in order to see if it fulfills that purpose perfectly. So we'd have to apply the concept of what kind of thing it is and what its purpose is. And that, as we'll be familiar by now, you can't do with the judgment of taste. You cannot base judgment of taste on concepts. You do have to base a judgment of perfection on concepts. Therefore, judgments of taste can't be judgments of perfection. Therefore, beauty can't be perfection. And the last conclusion that I think he draws from this is that beauty cannot be defined at least if you're using concepts of the kinds of properties a thing has got to have in order to be beautiful. So this is a generalization of the point about perfection. Um, and the implication seems to be that if it could be defined using concepts of properties a thing has got to have to be beautiful, then you could make a judgment of taste using, or you would be making judgments of taste using concepts of what properties the thing has got to have in order to be beautiful. Now, he does say it can't be defined by means of concepts. And I am assuming here he means by means of concepts of properties the thing has to have in order to be beautiful. The reason I say that is that uh, there are several points in the Critique of Judgment where he presents what he calls a definition of beauty. Uh, so, unless he's contradicting himself, which is a distinct possibility a lot of the time with Kant, uh, what I think we have to assume here is that it's using concepts of this particular kind. Concepts of properties or of kinds to which the object must belong in order to be beautiful. A definition that employs concepts of that kind can't be found. So this great ambition that many people have had over the years of defining beauty in these kinds of terms can't be done. Now, of course, he says this does not mean that we cannot get empirical evidence of what works or what forms of things people of all ages or nations find beautiful. And this, again, I think, has got to be some sort of reference to Hume. Or at least people with, obviously, at least people with that kind of view. But no such evidence can be used to make a judgment of taste. Because it's only based on pleasure. Okay. Now, having said all this, he then proceeds to make a distinction that seems inconsistent with it. He then distinguishes between what he calls free beauty and dependent beauty. Now, dependent beauty, as he puts it, presupposes a concept of what the object should be. So, for example, beautiful people, men, women, children, uh, beautiful warriors. So he had apparently read about some warriors in New Zealand who painted their bodies in various warlike ways. 
beautiful horses, beautiful buildings. The beauty of these objects tends to be what he calls dependent beauty because these objects are formed in such a way as to match their function, what they're supposed to be. So warriors are painted in scary ways. Horses are beautiful. The beauty of a horse is in virtue of properties that make it do what a horse is supposed to do, go fast, whatever. And as he puts it, such objects combine, or such, yeah, such objects combine both beauty and goodness in them. Because remember, the goodness of a thing has to do with what it's supposed to be. And these objects have a form matching what they're supposed to be. That's dependent beauty, but free beauty is not like that. It's not based, doesn't presuppose a concept. Now, obviously, this seems to pose a problem. Uh, it seems to suggest that all of a sudden he's allowing that you can make some judgments of taste based on concepts, namely judgments of dependent beauty. And there are various ways people have tried to get him out of this. Uh, one way, which seems kind of promising, actually, when you read section 16, where he makes this distinction, is to point out that well, what he says is, what he says presupposes a concept is the beauty, not the judgment. And he also makes the point that a church, for example, is the way it is because of the function it has. So there might be lots of ways of making it beautiful that you can't do to a church because of the function that it has. So this seems to suggest that it's not the judgment of the thing's beauty that's based on concepts, but the thing's beauty itself takes the form it does because of someone's concepts, the designer's concepts of the thing. Um, that's one way out. So, and so on this view, what we do, we judge beauty in just the same way as before, not based on concepts, just based on pleasure. So it's not based on the concept of the function of the church or the function of the horse, etc. But the horse is the way it is, and the church is the way it is, because of the function that they have. That's one way in which people have thought to defend Kant. And what's misleading here is that it makes it look like there are these two kinds of judgments of taste, when actually it's two kinds of beauty. And if there's a different kind of evaluation here at all, it's a sort of complex evaluation, combining a judgment of taste with a judgment about the thing's goodness or its fitness to function. So the judgment of taste, not based on concepts, but the complex judgment that has a judgment of taste as its component is based on concepts. That's one way people have thought of avoiding a contradiction here with Kant. Uh, he doesn't really return to this distinction too much. Uh, at all, actually, if, I, if I'm right. Uh, and that's one way people have tried to explain why he makes it, or how it's consistent with the other stuff that he says. Okay. So, as I say, really can't stress enough this point about the judgments of taste are aesthetic. 
in no way based and in no way based on concepts. The next point, uh, which is one of the ear- earliest points he makes in the critique, is that the pleasure judgments of taste are based on is disinterested. And this would be a hugely influential doctrine. Now the English word disinterested is misused a lot. It's often used to mean uninterested. Uh, it actually means something more like impartial. In this context, Kant gives it its own meaning. So he says that interest is, as he puts it, pleasure connected with the representation of the existence of an object. And that arises from a desire for the object to exist. So the thought seems to be, you desire the object to exist, you represent an object like that as existing, and that brings you pleasure. That's not what pleasure and beauty is like, he says. And what he says to support that is based on an example of a palace. And unfortunately, it's muddied a bit by the fact that in this example, it's an example of displeasure or lack of pleasure. But I think we can sort of see what he means. So he says, if I ask you whether a palace is beautiful, and you say, I don't think there should be palaces uh, with so many people starving, or uh, I think palaces are otherwise a waste, if I had a nice warm home, I wouldn't uh, accept a palace if I could bring one about. Uh, And he says you might rail like Rousseau against the vanity of the great attached to, uh, that's manifested in palaces. Kant says, all this might be very admirable, but it would not answer my question, which was, is the thing beautiful? And to answer that question, what you've got to consider is not whether you are displeased that such palaces exist, but whether the mere representation, i.e. the perception of the palace, pleases you or not. Not whether you are pleased that it exists or whether any desires for you, that you have for it to exist lead you to be pleased or displeased that it does exist. Again, it's worth reminding yourself here of that thing I quoted earlier where he says, the question is just whether there's a pleasure coupled with the representation of it. And I think here he also makes the point that if I merely hold it up to my faculty of representation, to my senses. Do I get pleasure from that? Yes or no? That's the thought. Now, actually, there's sort of two ways of reading what he says here. Uh, One seems to be... I mean, one, one thing he says seems to suggest that you have to be indifferent to the thing's existence in order to judge whether it's beautiful. Uh, Another way of taking what he says is the more plausible claim that uh, you can't base your pleasure 
on any desire you have for it to exist or not. So you can have those desires <clears throat> and still judge whether it's beautiful. You just can't base your pleasure and therefore your judgment on those desires and any pleasure or displeasure that they give rise to. But as I say, there's something he definitely says that makes it sound like you have to remove all desire for its existence to judge whether it's beautiful. And that sort of claim is what a lot of people have attacked. Um, and it does sound like he's saying that at one point. Okay. So this is also something that makes pleasure and beauty different from other kinds of pleasure. So pleasure in the agreeable, again, the spicy food, is based on a desire for it to exist. So it's based on a desire for food, an instinct we have for food. Likewise, he says, although he doesn't say much more about it than assert it, is that pleasure in the good is also interested. And the thought seems to be that you cannot take pleasure in a thing's goodness without desiring that thing to exist. Seems plausible enough. Okay, so that's the rather obscure, in some ways, and on some readings, controversial doctrine of disinterestedness. Now he draws one enormously important conclusion from this. And I'm going to conclude with this and return to it at the start of the next lecture because it's really, really important. And it's the thing that poses the big problem that it's the main project of the critique to solve. So a consequence of this, he thinks, is that when you judge something to be beautiful, you are committed to the claim that everyone else ought to agree with you. This, he says, gives judgments of taste that quality of universality that we talked about at the very start which was one of the marks of a priori, a priori knowledge, or a priori judgments. Now, it's not quite clear whether this is something that's implied by what you say or whether it's the content of what you say. He doesn't really make those distinctions very clearly. But what's at least clear is that when you judge something to be, 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 excuse me, to be beautiful, you are committed to this view that everyone else ought to agree with you ought to agree with you that the thing is beautiful. And he provides some argument for this, and he thinks he can derive it from the point about disinterestedness. And I'll just sort of read out how I've reconstructed this. So the first claim seems to be that if you're aware that your pleasure is disinterested, then you're aware of no source of your pleasure that might be unique to you, such as a desire for something that others might not share. second point seems to be if you're aware uh, of no source of your pleasure that might be unique to you 
then you must believe that its source is something about you that you share with everyone. And third premise seems to be that if you are aware that its source is something about you that you share with everyone, then you will believe that everyone else ought to agree with your judgment of taste. Based on that pleasure, whose source is some factor about you that you share with everyone. That's how he gets universality from disinterestedness. Namely, how he gets the claim that everyone ought to agree with you, and because it's a, an everyone statement, it's universal, it has universality, from the point about disinterestedness. Now, in loads of ways, that's a terrible argument, um, but we're going to leave that aside for the moment. Uh, the somewhat more plausible thing, and the thing that people tend to point to who think he's onto something here, occurs in his further discussion contrasting agreeableness with beauty. And this is simply the point and the observation that we argue with people over judgments of taste, but not over judgments of the agreeable. So we blame people who disagree with us. Remember, this was a point Hume was really stressing. He thinks judgments over spicy food, things like this, do not give rise to these arguments. It would not make sense to blame people for disagreeing that the food is tasty or disgusting, things like that. That's the claim. And that's supposed to show that when we judge something beautiful by contrast with agreeable, we are committing ourselves to the claim that everyone else ought to agree with us. Otherwise, these arguments or this blame wouldn't make sense. When something is agreeable, we're happy to qualify it and say, it's agreeable to me, though not to you, I grant. He says, we don't qualify beauty in this way. We don't say, well, it's beautiful to me. That would not make sense, he thinks. So this point about universality, as I say, incredibly important for what he's doing here. It poses a very strange problem, which I'll elaborate on a bit more next week. But the thought is that since judgments of taste are based just on your own feeling of pleasure and on nothing else, not the observation that other people are pleased with it, or any proof, because proofs of a thing's beauty are not possible, arguments proving that it's beautiful are not possible, and yet you think everybody else ought to agree, a question arises is, by what right can you expect that? By what right can you demand that of other people? And he's well aware that this is very strange. This is a very strange feature of judgments of taste, demanding explanation. He doesn't just assert that you have the right to do this. He tries to show that you have the right to expect other people to agree. And next week, we'll get into that along with the analytic of the sublime. Thank you.